Yes, we are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It's called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toladano. John Wall doesn't need no introduction. It's an insider's look at the NBA and culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick of the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall, will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a new way to bet on things outside of sports with Kalshi. Maybe you thought uh, on the future of TikTok. Will Congress ban it? Or won't they? Will Taylor Swift's album win album of the year? Will Biden's approval rating go up? Will it go down? Or inflation? You can trade futures on all of that and make money if you're correct. You're smart. You know things. Bet on it. $20 bonus if you go to Kalshi.com slash stereo. Spelled K-A-L-S-H-I and deposit $50. Kalshi.com slash stereo. Get in the game. There is no guarantee of performance. An investor could lose their entire investment. Investment fees. iHeartMedia does not recommend any investments. See further disclosures at Kalshi.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Brandon and I Am Rapport Stereo Podcast is here. You can have no fear on today's I Am Rapport Stereo Podcast. Kendrick Perkins, J.J. Reddick, white men can't jump, but can white men win the MVP? Uh, there was a big blow up on ESPN. I break that down and why race in sports is and always will be an issue you cannot talk about comfortably and honestly on television. Plus, I have a great guest. Aaron Rupar is a reporter. He's a journalist who has over a million followers on Twitter. He is where I go to most of the time to get all my information, specifically on Dick's Donald Trump, and all things in between. I get to ask him how he got started, where things are going, where things have come from. He got kicked off Twitter, how he got back on Twitter, and what he expects and predicts from the 2024 election. All that and more in a beautiful museum quality. I'm Rapport Stereo Podcast coming up right now. Miles Jordan, a.k.a. the Bleach Brothers, a.k.a. the Dust Brothers. Start this puppy off with something real nice, yes? Start this puppy off with something real loud, yes? But most importantly, start this puppy off with something real funky. I am Rapport Stereo Podcast. Let's fucking Yes, Brandon Bing and I am Rapport Stereo Podcast is here. He can have no fear, have absolutely, positively no fear. I am Rapport Stereo Podcast is in Sukasa. Hope everybody's feeling good. Hope everybody's feeling safe. Hope everybody is feeling sane. 
Hope everybody's feeling really, really, really sane. I'm Rapport Stereo Podcast is in Sukasa. Welcome to the Iron Dome of Disruption. Welcome to the Ziggity Zone of Disruption. As I said, I have a really exciting, fun, interesting guest, Aaron Rupar, who's a reporter who is my go-to guy for keeping me up to date on all things Dick Stain, Donald Trump, and beyond. He has over a million followers on Twitter. Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, Rupar, R-U-P-A-R. I've never met him. I've never spoken to him. But I'm excited to have him on the I Am Rap Report Stereo Podcast. He's a reporter who I've never heard speak. He's a journalist who I've never heard speak. But he has been in the throes, in the cut for the last, I don't know, five, six years. Heavy, heavy, heavy duty on social media. And he really just puts out a lot of videos, a lot of content, and he doesn't respond on social media. He doesn't um, give his opinion. He just puts out the stuff. He's gotten kicked off Twitter. He's gotten put back on Twitter. I'm excited to hear. The funny thing is, is I follow him so closely, but I've never, I've literally never heard him talk. I'm not even exactly sure what he looks like, but we are streaming this interview. So we'll put out clips um, and the audio for the interview, obviously, you're listening to in this episode. And before we get to that, I wanted to just remind everybody that I'm going to be in Cleveland this weekend. Cleveland this weekend, which I'm pumped up for the 10th and the 11th. And then I will be in Indianapolis, March 23rd, 24th, and 25th. And I'll be in Dallas, April 6th. 7th and 8th, I'm going to be in Philadelphia, the 27th, 28th, 29th of April, and then there's some dates in May, some dates in June, but that's the upcoming stuff. You could come see me live and direct. Come see me live and direct. All tickets, all information is available at michaelrappaportcomedy.com. And um, before we get into Aaron Rupar and talking about pig, dick, Donald Trump, I wanted to talk about this controversy that took place. It always takes place. Race, sports, sports, race, race in the media, race in the media 2023, Twitter mob, black Twitter. Russian Twitter, all things sports related to Twitter. So Kendrick Perkins, who I've never met, who played, of course, for the Boston Celtics, played for the Oklahoma City Thunder, played for the Cleveland Cavaliers, played for a few teams. He um, got into a deep dish of hot water this week, a couple of days ago, because the ridiculous discussion that goes on 
almost 365 days a year, even during the offseason of the NBA, but it certainly starts at the beginning of the NBA season. The ridiculous, overrated, overanalyzed, overemphasized regular season MVP discussion got him into trouble, but not as much trouble as he would have gotten into if he was white. And I'm going to keep it all the way funky when I break uh, this J.J. Redick, Kendrick Perkins, ESPN first take situation down. The discussion was about Nikola Jokic, Jovic, Jokic, about the Joker, the Denver Nuggets, two-time MVP who... For all intents and purposes, looks like he's going to win the MVP again because he's averaging a triple-double on the Denver Nuggets who have the number one seed and barring injury and a total collapse, the Denver Nuggets are the best team in the Western Conference again. And he's been playing incredible basketball again. So has Joel Embiid, who is on the Philadelphia 76ers, who do not have as good of a record. It's not a big stretch at the end of, as of the recording of this Iron Rap Poor Stereo podcast, the Sixers are 43 and 22, and the Nuggets are 46 and 20. However, the Joker's averaging a triple double, and he's going to win the MVP. And it's sad because. You can only give one regular season MVP. And I've said this once. I've said it a gazillion times. In my humble opinion, the regular season MVP is the most overrated, over-discussed award in all of sports. The NBA regular season MVP is so overrated and so over-discussed. But then sometimes you strike gold like what happened with Perk and J.J. Redick on first take this week. So... Kendrick Perkins said this. I'm going to play the clip of what Kendrick Perkins said and then what J.J. Redick said in response, and then I will comment on the entire situation as only I, me, the gringo man, Dingo, can do. When it comes down to guys winning MVP since 1990, it's only three guys that won the MVP that wasn't top 10 in scoring. Do you know who those three guys were? Who were they? Steve Nash, Jokic, and uh, Dirk Nowinski. No. Dirk Nowinski. <laughs> what, do the, what do those guys have in common? I'll let, you sit, I'll let it sit there and marinate. You think about it. Stephen, I mean, I mean no offense to you, and I mean no offense to First Take, because I think this show is extremely valuable. It is an honor to be on this desk every day. It really is. But what we've just witnessed is the problem with this show where we create narratives that do not exist in reality. The implication, what you are implying, that the white voters that vote on NBA are racist, that are, they, they favor white people. You I just not, said that. I you ju- not, yes, you did. I yes, did you did. Not, I did. Yes, you did. That is exactly what you implied, Kendrick Perkins. That is exactly what you implied. Secondly, hold on, hold on. I did not call. I stated the facts. I stated the facts. And you're not about to sit up We all know like what you implied the other day. We all know what you implied just now. Hold on. I stated it. It's the facts. It's the facts. So, 
You heard what Perk said. You heard what J.J. Reddick said. I haven't met either one of these dudes. I like them both. I like uh, J.J. Reddick's podcast a lot. And uh, I like Perk. How could you not like Perk? Although I don't think his takes are that great. But he's genuine. He's honest. And he's one of these guys you just... He's like a regular guy who played in the NBA who speaks... Very regular. And that's what I like about what he said, although I totally don't agree with what he said, but I like when people speak regular on a public platform. And when I say regular, I mean flawed. I like mistakes. I like honesty. I don't even like mistakes. I like the honesty. I like that he said what he said. He believes what he said. And I like what J.J. Reddick said, which... He believes what he said. But I like that Kendrick Perkins spoke on the elephant in the room, which is really race in basketball, race in sports. But let's just stick to basketball. People are always going to have feelings about white players. White players are going to have feelings about white players. Black players are going to have feelings about white players. And every single thing in between. You know, Cedric Maxwell, Cornbread Maxwell, talks. There's a famous clip of him talking about when he played Larry Bird the first time in Boston Celtics training camp. He was like, man, I heard so much about this white boy. I never thought this white boy could play. I never thought any white boys could play. I'm about to bust this white boy's ass. And then after an hour of playing against that white boy, Larry Bird, he changed his tune. And obviously, these days, you can't really even use the language that Cedric Maxwell said, Cornbread Maxwell, used in that interview talking about Larry Bird. But black players are always going to sort of try white players. They're always going to try to see if they're soft, see if they could punk them. You know, Steven Jackson and Matt Barnes, they've been very open. When they played the Dallas Mavericks, we punked Dirk Nowinski. That's why we won. We were able to punk them. We were able to throw them off their game. You're always going to try that shit. You're going to try white players. You're going to try to see if they're soft. Try to see if they're overrated. Try to see if they're this, that, and the third. You know, and that's truth. That's honesty. I like it. I got no problem with it. And I like what J.J. Reddick said in regards to Jokic, Davinsky, and Steve Nash. Um, standing up for them and standing up for the voting of the MVP um, in the NBA. I think that the Joker doesn't stab pad. I've thought in the past that at times Russell Westbrook did stat pad, pad his stats. Um, That's been another discussion that Perkins has been saying that Joker, you know, has been padding his stats to get that triple-double and... You know, nobody says that he's padding stats, but everybody was saying it, and everybody wasn't saying it, but it was discussed when Russell Westbrook played. And overall, I'm a Westbrook fan. But the point of race, you know, the sort of elephant in the room, um, and not being able to speak openly, honestly, and fairly about race and sports is an infection in sports media today. Because if J.J. Reddick or some other sports broadcaster uh, said anything 
similar bye-bye, either suspended, fired, or completely Louis C.K.'d. If he had said the exact same thing where the tables were turned, he would have gotten in trouble. Um, ESPN had to apologize because of uh, the discussion. And Why apologize? You want real talk? You want barbershop talk? Essentially, that's what all these shows are trying to create. Barbershop talk, real talk, street ball talk, you know, people being honest. And that's the way people feel. Motherfuckers are always going to question. I, I question them. I question white athletes. Look, I, Christian McCaffrey, this little white motherfucker, how is he going to be able to sustain this shit? Prove me wrong. You can't say that that's not a question around, you know, white athletes. It is. And then when it gets spoken about, it's not a big deal. But if white reporters speak out of context, say something fucked up, say something... um. That might have been misconstrued like the Skip Bayless, DeMar Hamlin thing. They were calling for Skip Bayless's fucking head. Now, obviously, that was a more serious thing because of the severity of the DeMar Hamlin injury at the time. Um, but people were like, this motherfucker needs to go. He's racist. It's just not a fair, fair situation. And me personally, I don't give a fuck because I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. I'm comfortable talking about race. I'm comfortable with the innuendos. I'm comfortable with the stereotypes. I'm comfortable with the prejudices. Whether people uh, that are black could be racist or not, I don't know. That's a whole other discussion that people have. Me personally, I love it. I've had some of my biggest controversies talking about race. People don't like if it's a two-sided, fully honest conversation. They want and expect the white point of view to be passive, to be submissive, and to be totally listening, learning, and not have a, a disagreeing point of view. That's just not me. And just like J.J. Reddick had a disagreeing point of view, and he's totally fucking right. If the shoe was on the other foot, J.J. Reddick or whoever that white person saying that stuff was would be in a lot of trouble. It's similar in comedy. Such a stereotypical low-hanging fruit of a lot of black comedians was the setup is white people be like this and black people be like this and white people be like this and black people be like this. And if a white comedian did it and it's not at the highest, highest end, the most strategic level, cancel. You're a racist. Fuck this guy. He's a racist. And I'm going to tell you something. Again, me personally, me, Mike Rapp, I don't have a problem with it, but what I think it makes people do when you have to stifle your opinions, stifle your thoughts because you're afraid of being called racist, I truly think that's the sort of general sort of mentality, the general sort of one plus one, the general ingredient why somebody like Trump was able to get nominated. Um, because there has to be equal rights, uh, but it has to be on both sides, especially as something as mundane as opinions on sports. And like I said, there's always going to be racial issues in sports, whether it's black on black, Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier, whether it's uh, Colin Kaepernick, whether it's John Carlos at the Olympics, whether it's um, this conversation that just came up with Kendra Perkins and J.J. Reddick. I mean, there was a movie called White Men Can't Jump, and it's being remade. 
Nobody has a problem with that. But if the movie was black people can't shoot jump shots, it would be a whole thing. You know, because the stereotype before is uh, white basketball players could shoot. Black players didn't, couldn't shoot as well, generally, because they were more athletic. Uh, the age-old thing with Larry Bird and Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah Thomas, you know, got in trouble because of what he said about Larry Bird. And, you know, they talk about Larry Bird being a thinking player, and he has to think. You know, uh, the other players are getting over on their athleticism. Anyway, these are age-old conversations about sports. They should continue to happen. You should be able to say things that offend people. You should be able to say things uh, that people don't agree with and not get canceled. I don't think Kendrick Perkins should be canceled. I don't think if a white reporter said something uh, similar, but talking about uh, black MVPs, they should get canceled. I feel like we should be able to be honest. I feel like this cancel shit, this suspension shit, is just going to make people, cultures, retreat into their collective corners I am Podcast. at bed 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every home run every hit every inning every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar see for yourself when you sign up today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets when you bet just five dollars Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. There's a new way to bet on things outside of sports with Kalshi. Maybe you thought uh, on the future of TikTok, will Congress ban it? Or won't they? Will Taylor Swift's album win album of the year? Will Biden's approval rating go up? Will it go down or inflation? You can trade futures on all of that and make money if you're correct. You're smart. You know things. Bet on it. $20 bonus if you go to Kalshi.com slash stereo. Spelled K-A-L-S-H-I and deposit $50. Kalshi.com slash stereo. Get in the game. There is no guarantee of performance. An investor could lose their entire investment. Investment fees. iHeartMedia does not recommend any investments. See further disclosures at Kalshi.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare And now, uh, let me bring in Aaron Rupar to talk all things social media, all things Dickstein Donald Trump, all things January 6th, and to hear the voice behind the face of one of the loudest, biggest platforms on Twitter. Aaron Rupar is here. Have no fear. It's so funny to be looking at you uh, because I follow you so closely and, you know, you sort of keep yourself and 
your personal opinions out of things for the most part, as far as I can see, particularly specifically on Twitter. And you're a journalist, and I, I respect that. So it's good to see you. It's good to hear your voice. Uh, like I said, I wasn't quite sure. You know, all I see is your your picture on there, which I don't think does you any favors, man. I don't think your picture. Oh, really? I think you might have to change your picture now because I I feel like it's dark. It's kind of hidden. Is that on purpose that you keep like sort of yourself out of it? Uh, I think I don't really think I keep myself out of it that much. I mean, I, I express a lot of opinions on Twitter, and um, actually, the funny thing with my avatar photo is that it's probably about a dozen years old at this point and i really should change it but i tried to change it um maybe about two years ago now and you know i don't know if it's kind of the purple hue that it has or what but i got flooded with people who were like why did you change your photo i don't even recognize you like what's going on and so after a couple days of pretty much universal negative feedback i just uh, caved and went back to the original one so i've been Meaning at some point to like hire an illustrator to kind of update my image a little bit on there. But um, for now, it's fine. It only shows my face. So I don't feel like one of those people, you know, where you're trying to conceal your age or something like that. Um, but no, I mean, it, it, I really never intended for that to be kind of like my, you know, signature image on Twitter. But it just kind of went that way. And I've had it for so long now that changing it is kind of a it's a problem at this point. I understand. I understand. So you're a journalist. And, you know, I've been, you know, before I was going to have you on the show, uh, I've been sniffing around and looking up some more um, information about you. But can you just tell, you know, the listeners who don't know who you are, what you do, and what your background is as a journalist? Sure, yeah. Um, so these days I'm independent. I publish a newsletter called Public Notice, and I cover mainly Republican politics and uh, media, especially right-wing media. I cover you know politics more broadly, though. My most recent newsletter is actually largely about Marianne Williamson and kind of unpacking her primary challenge to Biden and how it actually is a sign of Biden's strength, that the only challenger he has is kind of a fringe figure at this point. But uh, I've been doing that, the newsletter, for about a year and a half now. And prior to that... I was at Vox for three years, and I think most people probably know me from there because I was covering Trump and the Trump White House, and so that was when I really kind of built a name for myself posting a lot of video clips and doing a lot of coverage of his rallies, of press briefings, uh, congressional hearings, all that sort of stuff, and I do a lot of video work, um, which is you know probably how most people know me is through video clips that they see on Twitter. Um, you know, I do post them on other platforms as well, but Twitter is by and Far and away my largest following at this point. Before Vox, I was at Think Progress uh, out in D.C., uh, which no longer exists. And previous to that, I was a journalist in the Twin Cities. So I kind of worked my way up the ladder. Um, I'm back in Minnesota these days, um, you know, doing my own thing and covering a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, is based out of D.C. So I find myself back there every now and then. But, um, you know, it's one of the beauties of this day and age that we're in is that since we watch everything kind of on our screens anyway... I can cover most anything, you know, that I see in my screen and then with help from, you know, calling people on the phone, DMing, all that sort of good stuff. You know, I, I said before I got you uh, here, you know, I go to your page, no bullshit, to catch up, to consolidate um, all things Trump. You know, I missed, I was doing something this weekend, uh, particularly, I believe it was Saturday night this past weekend during the CPAC and I wanted to get a 
a sense on what happened. I know Trump had spoken, and I go right to your page. I mean, I could screenshot you and, and show you, uh, you know, as far as searches. You're a lot of times my first, uh, you know, search to keep me up to speed on things and to get those clips. Did you have a, a light bulb moment, an idea to share these real time clips? And when did you realize they were becoming so popular? Yeah, well, thank you, Michael. That's really flattering to hear. And I'm always, um, whenever people tell me that they kind of use my account as their go-to for, you know, the right wing, I appreciate that very much. And uh, yeah, it was actually kind of a light bulb thing because um, back in the fall of 2017, when I was at Think Progress, we had a newsroom training on this product called Snapstream, which is still the service I use that records TV. And then I use that to post videos. It also records like streams online. You know, today I I did a live thread covering this hearing that had Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger over the Twitter files, and I recorded that using Snapstream. But the long and short of it was um, we had this training. I was watching Fox News one night. Uh, John Kelly, who at that time was the White House chief of staff, was on there. And this was right after the Charlottesville stuff had gone down in 2017 and all of the controversy over the Confederate monuments and, you know, Trump defending them and, you know, the horrible scene in Charlottesville where uh, Heather Heyer uh, was killed. And John Kelly was on Laura Ingram's show defending basically the honor of the Confederacy and making this argument that the Confederacy wasn't actually fighting for slavery. They were fighting over heritage or something along those lines. And, you know, I happened to see this. I just kind of had Fox News on in the background while I was doing other stuff at home. And I just had this training. So, you know, I kind of had the thought of, man, I should really post like a 30 second clip, you know, and just kind of see how this does on Twitter. Well, it immediately was the most viral thing I had ever posted. I think by the time the next morning rolled around, I had like a million views and a, you know, a few thousand retweets. And so right away, I mean, you know, th that was literally the first clip that I ever posted using Snapstream. And right after that, you know, it was like, man, there's a huge appetite for posting news clips. And at that time, there weren't that many accounts doing that. So I kind of had it to myself. And, you know, that led to me watching a lot of Fox News, watching all of the White House press briefings, Trump rallies and speeches and all that stuff. And it just kind of became part of my workflow as a journalist because I was covering a lot of that stuff anyway. My beat was the Trump White House. And so I was watching all this stuff and then adding the video just kind of added another dimension that people really seemed to like. And over the years that followed it, you know, it became um, kind of the central part of my workflow and my Twitter account grew exponentially. And that led to me getting poached by Vox which ultimately led to me having enough of a, a following to go independent and kind of do my own thing. So, yeah, I mean, it, it really was kind of a eureka moment. Um, and I guess, you know, that's one of those weird things in life where you just kind of sometimes stumble into things that really work out well for you. You know, being a journalist means so many things these days. Um, and I don't think it means what it used to mean. I don't know if that's good or bad. I am not a journalist. Um, I don't consider myself a journalist. But what is your philosophy on being a journalist today? Because it's there's so much information. There's so much news. There's so much misinformation. There's so much disinformation. There's so much information that we think is gold, concrete, ironclad, um, etched in stone truth. Uh, and then it turns out to not be. On both sides, in my opinion. I feel like we're being thrown, given, absorbing so much bullshit what is your philosophy today uh in 2023 on being a journalist and trying to stick to your guns trying to have a point of view but trying to stay out of it like where's your head at with your day-to-day your -day goal being a journalist well that was one of the really nice things with going independent is that 
you know, I can really kind of be accountable to myself and my readers and not have to worry about, you know, saying something that might offend my editor or bosses. Um, and I've always been progressive. So, you know, part of what I do is decoding right-wing media for a mostly liberal audience, you know, almost entirely liberal. And so, yeah, I mean, that's part of the service I think that I try to provide is kind of cutting through what you were talking about, some of the misinformation and, you know, intentional confusion that's out there. And, um, you know, explaining what's going on to people um, who may not have time to watch all of the political events I do or watch all of the right wing media I do. So, yeah, I mean, I don't really have to worry about pulling punches because I don't work for anyone at this point. You know, that's a very common pressure if you're in a large newsroom. You know, we're seeing that right now with CNN, where, you know, CNN had new leadership that came in about a year ago now. And, you know, they've laid off a bunch of people, including some of their most uh, liberal voices that they had on the network. And so that can lead people to pull punches or kind of make compromises in order to preserve their job and their status where they're working. And thankfully, I don't have to worry about that. I mean, you know, being independent kind of has its own challenges, you know, just trying to run a business and how totalizing it can be. And, you know, I have two young kids. So trying to maintain any sort of work-life balance can really be uh, tough, you know, when you're trying to work, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, depending on what's going on in the news. But I don't have to worry about making those compromises. And I guess my overriding philosophy is just to be true to what's going on, to be true to the facts and have integrity. And um, I think that's part of the reason that people enjoy my coverage is because I've always kind of been guided by sort of basic liberal values of tolerance and egalitarianism and treating people with respect and dignity. And so, um, you know, there's nothing overly complicated about any of that stuff. But, um, you know, it does get into the weeds of policy. I mean, part of what I try to do as well is to explain things for lay people, um, try to make complicated topics more simple rather than the other way around. You know, I view my kind of core function as a journalist to bring clarity to issues and to inform people. And so um, pretty basic values. Um, I, you know, it's more of an art than a science, but, you know, I just try to, to I try to stay true to um, kind of very basic values on a day in day out basis. I, I think it's important to make things simple and speak in layman terms in politics, um, in news in general. I think that all sides of the news they prey on us not being up to speed, not being us up to date. And whether they that's correct or not, you know, let's say you're a person who doesn't follow the NBA, but one day you get curious about what's going on in the NBA. If you're not up to speed on the new the minutiae, the names, the trades, and you just turn on like ESPN, you're not gonna know what the fuck is going on. Now, obviously, sports is simpler than than news you know like if i said to you aaron where should i go today to get a an overall you know understanding of ukraine and russia and how we got here where would i go like where does the layman go to sort of catch up and get basic information without spending you know seven days in a library and catching up on piles and piles of stacks and stacks and things is there a place to sort of you know politics news for dummies oh boy that's a really good question uh you know that was really part of the mission at vox and i still think it, it is you know trying to explain the news to people maybe that's a little bit more wonky than what you're looking for i mean myself um as a news consumer i mean i still kind of have the nightly rotation of wall street journal new york times washington post and then the, the Star Tribune, which is a local paper here in Minnesota. Um, so I kind of use those basic sources that, you know, everybody is kind of aware of. And then I supplement that, obviously, with Twitter. And, you know, you, you kind of get the hot takes from Twitter 
or the uh, video clips, things like that. But I kind of use those big sources to give me, you know, the, the big picture news. If there's, you know, um, if Russia has a new offensive in Ukraine, like the Wall Street Journal is going to have that, you know, and, and they're going to have the factual coverage. They're not necessarily going to have, you know, a lot of um, big explainers on what it means or takes about, um, you know, how Russia is handling things or things like that. But you might be able to get that from Twitter. So, you know, in terms of if there's one source that kind of provides all of that, I don't really feel like there is, unfortunately. Um, but as you were talking about earlier, I mean, it's such a complicated world that we're in that I think that that would be kind of impossible anyway. So I would just recommend to people to, you know, be use your basic media literacy, know uh, good information from bad information. And when you use those kind of institutional sources that have a lot of vetting and have a lot of credibility and a longstanding reputation, um, more likely than not, they're not going to lead you astray. Of course, we can all think back. I mean, you're old enough, too, to remember the Iraq war and some of the misinformation that the New York Times had that, you know, kind of created the conditions by which it made sense to invade. And that ended up being a really bad decision, obviously, that our country made. Um, So I don't want to give them too much credit. But, you know, that's just you have to kind of work with what you have, because I don't really think we have that one source. Um, So, you know, I use the big ones kind of across the board. And then if you want the spicier stuff, I mean, you know, Twitter is still pretty good for that. Let's talk about my uh, favorite former president, Dick Stain, Donald Trump, I was all over him. Charlottesville was where I really, really started publicly um, speaking about him um, outside of just the I Am Rappaport Stereo podcast. You know, you you were all over him uh, during the pandemic and during his presidency, posting a lot of stuff, um, posting everything. I mean, you were really, really, like I said, you know, you were a go-to guy uh, from it. What response did you get from the Trump lovers um, obviously, I know the the people that didn't like him. I know that they appreciate you and repost that stuff. But the what has been the response? Um, death threats, um, insults that you've gotten in regards to Trump, uh, you know, lovers. Oh, a lot of that stuff. Um, I, you know, I kind of view that as being unfortunately kind of a cost of doing business. And you know, there's only been a couple that have been really scary where they kind of have like personal information of yours, and it's like, oh man, this person's kind of gone the extra mile to. Um, harass me or, you know, scare me or whatever. But, um, it would, you know, honestly, it's kind of what you would expect. I mean, just a lot of, um, kind of nasty replies on Twitter and things like that. I would say if anything, I get a little bit less of that now, just because I think people kind of know, um, like they know who I am. So it's not really a surprise or people who don't want to pay attention to me. Don't, you know, I mean, I still do have like the Charlie Kirks of the world who follow me and occasionally will, you know, have some sort of, um, critique of my work or something like that. But, um, you know, it's it's basically what you would expect. Um, you know, there were a few times where Trump, you know, I think kind of accidentally retweeted me where I think he was like searching for a particular topic and my tweet was like at the top of the search page. And so he'd retweet me. Um, the one that That's comes, crazy. The one that comes to mind right away um, that you probably remember is when the Washington Nationals went to the White House after they won the World Series in 2019. And there was that kind of infamous scene where Kirk Suzuki, who was the catcher on the Nationals, um, it seemed like he was possibly drunk. You know, he was kind of making a scene, but he and Trump kind of had this awkward hug. And uh, Suzuki put a, a MAGA hat on and it kind of became, you know, he, he took a lot of criticism for that. He had to explain later that he's apolitical and didn't really understand, you know, that he was endorsing any sort of a political view by doing that. He just kind of viewed Trump as the president of the United States. Um, but I posted a short clip of that, you know, without really having any sort of biting commentary, just like Kurt Suzuki hugs Donald Trump. And then, you know, a couple hours later, Trump himself retweeted that. And so, um, you know, my, my mentions at that point in time and still today were so kind of flooded that it didn't really lead to any appreciable change or uptick in replies or anything like that. 
But, um, you know, by and large, I mean, again, um, like Donald Trump Jr. has gone after me a couple times. Um, the Charlie Kirk's the world, those types of people. But that's just kind of part of what it is to be a journalist when you have a large profile covering Trump. You know, you're going to get incoming. And um, that's just part of the, you know, if, if that really bothers people, then you're probably in the, in the wrong line of work because you, you kind of have to have thick skin to do this sort of thing day in and day out. A hundred percent. Where are you at with Trump? Today, uh, March 2023, if you were a betting man, would you bet, not whether you want him to win, uh, not whether you want him to run, would you bet on him running? Would you bet on him winning? If if just for pure financial gain, well, where, all, where's your head running. at on that? He's already running. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, he hasn't really had an official campaign rally yet. I mean, the, the closest thing was a CPAC speech that you mentioned, you know, last weekend. But yeah, I mean, if I had to bet, I think he's winning. I think he's winning the nominee um, or excuse me, the nomination. He's going to be the nominee because I think that, um, you know, you look at the Republican base and Trump probably has, you know, let's be conservative and say it's 20 to 25 percent of Republicans are basically kind of cult members of the, the Trump cult and um, they're going to support him no matter what. And so then you already basically have a 20% head start because, I mean, you know, Ron DeSantis, who's the number two contender, I mean, you know, what, what percentage of the base do you think is loyal to him? Maybe like two to 3%. So it's, you know, a fraction of what Trump has. So he already has that huge head start. And, you know, we're seeing the polling that's been done in recent months. If anything, the little bump that DeSantis had late last year when Trump, you know, Trump's legal trouble seemed to be catching up to him. When the midterms didn't go that well for Republicans, that kind of took a toll on him. But it seems like he's kind of bounced back. And um, I just don't really see anything changing that because we're already kind of seeing the dynamics of this primary are reminding me a lot of 2016, where, you know, Trump is out there basically accusing DeSantis of being a groomer and trying to tear him down on true social. And DeSantis is just kind of, you know, biding his time, not really saying anything. I don't know if he's hoping that, you know, Trump's legal troubles will take him down or if he's just thinking that he's going to have to wait a little while to go negative because it's too early. There's still a year out from votes actually being cast. But whatever the case, you know, I think Trump is working hard to define him and kind of disqualify him. And that's exactly what he did one after one to the Republicans last time around, you know, in 2016 when there was a competitive primary. So I don't really see anything at this point that makes me think that DeSantis is going to have more success against Trump than like Ted Cruz or um, Marco Rubio did last time around. Granted, his polling is a little bit higher right now than any of those guys enjoyed. You know, he's up over 20 percent. Trump is around like 50 percent or so. But, um, you know, unless things get really bad for Trump on the legal front or, you know, DeSantis really goes hard because, you know, I think DeSantis's best argument against Trump is basically the I'm a winner, you're a loser argument where you can say, look, you know, in Florida last year, I won by 20 percent. Trump, you know, you had to try to overturn democracy because you lost last time. Um, let's not do that again sort of thing, you know, and really kind of paint Trump as a loser. Uh, but to do that, that's going to take some courage because Trump is going to pull out, you know, all of the heavy artillery and really try to make him, uh, you know, like kind of a, a member of some sort of, um, you know, like a goat worshiper or something like that, like he likes to do with all of his political opponents. So I, you know, if I had to bet, I would definitely bet on Trump. Um, we're a long way out from the first votes being cast. I mean, it's like 11 months or 10 months. So a lot can change between now and then. But I just don't see anything at this point that leads me to believe that DeSantis has 
um, you know, something that these guys in 2016 didn't have to beat Trump. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think he's going to be the nominee, but I think that sets him up. If it's a, a rematch of Biden and Trump, I don't really like Trump's chances at this point. You know, Biden oh. has not been perfect by any means, but I don't think that anything Trump has done since leaving office is going to endear him to the voters that decide elections, you know, any more than it did back in 2020. So, um, you know, if, if I had to force, you know, predict at this point how things play out, I think Trump wins Republican nomination. He ultimately loses to Biden in a rematch. Um, but again, you know, that's that's a long ways out at this point. Doesn't it frighten you the idea of him losing and what he will do? And the frustration of the Trump supporters, it frightens me, to be honest, if he ran and he lost. Uh, uh, because last time we had January 6th, which I want to pivot into, um, and I don't know what we would have this time, and, and nor do I expect you yeah. to know. But it, it, Well, it, I'll, on that topic, I'll say, I'll say this, that I think it's scarier when Trump was in power, you know, because he has all of the levers of power at his disposal. He controls the military. He controls the federal police. To some, I mean, controls is too strong of a word, but he, you know, he oversees all of these different agencies of power and can use them toward his ends. And when he's not in office, I mean, certainly I could see him trying to inspire violence in one form or another, but I'm not as worried about like a January 6th style coup attempt because I think that's a lot harder to engineer when you're not in power and you don't have the levers of power at your command. So um, you're very right to be concerned as I am about what Trump is capable of. But, you know, um, I, I do think that in terms of being worried about like another coup attempt, um, I don't think he's going to have a better opportunity than he did in January 2021 when he was the president. It didn't work out from then. So I'm not that worried about that next time around. I am Rappaport Podcast. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's a new way to bet on things outside of sports with Kalshi. Maybe you thought uh, on the future of TikTok. Will Congress ban it? Or won't they? Will Taylor Swift's album win album of the year? Will Biden's approval rating go up? Will it go down? Or inflation? You can trade futures on all of that and make money if you're correct. You're smart. You know things. Bet on it. $20 bonus if you go to Kalshi.com slash stereo. Spelled K-A-L-S-H-I and deposit $50. Kalshi.com slash stereo. Stereo, get in the game. There is no guarantee of performance. An investor could lose their entire investment. Investment fees, iHeartMedia does not recommend any investments. See further disclosures at Kalshi.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
what the fuck happened January 6th, Aaron? Well, what happened? Because, you know, I did a video, I believe it was the 29th, December 29th. It might have been December 30th because Trump said January 6th, it's going to be hell. And I did a video. This is a week before. And the video's on Twitter and the video's on my Instagram and I posted it and I've reposted it. Cause, and I said, you know, in the eloquent way that I say things, but I was like, what the fuck are you? I basically said, what the fuck are you talking about? Like I said, what the fuck are you talking about? Because I was like, it was a threat. And, and my wife and I had a conversation that day and she said, what do you mean? I go, what the fuck does he mean? You know, and sure enough, you know, it, it blew up, but what is, I know you, there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. I, I, but what do you think happened? Why was it harder for protesters to get into the Apple store in Soho than it was to get into the Capitol building that day? Yeah, I think really the kind of the most simple explanation is the one that I tend to be sympathetic to in this case, which is that, I mean, there were just so many more protesters and police officers. I mean, we've all seen the footage of how they were just overwhelmed, like right away. You know, there was like one police officer for every 50 insurrectionists. And so, um, you know, this has been obviously in the news this week again with Tucker Carlson presenting his very skewed version of January 6th and basically using footage of when these insurrections were in the Capitol not committing crimes to kind of suggest that it was peaceful as though like the arsonist, you know, the moments when they're not burning down buildings, that means that they're good guys or something like that. You know, it's very weird when you kind of think through the logic that he's using. But, you know, I tend to, in terms of like what happened in the sense of how did they get in the Capitol? Um, you know, just how was that even possible? I mean, I just think it was basically a numbers game. And I, I do think part of it too, was that um, there were legitimate concerns that, you know, if the military was deployed kind of in advance of January 6th, that it'd be viewed as a coup attempt and that we didn't want to kind of militarize D.C. under those conditions where obviously Trump was very resistant to leave office, that it could look, you know, as opposed to looking like they were trying to maintain order, it could actually look kind of like the opposite and could be the opposite where Trump was actually trying to use the military to stay in power. And so, um, you know, I think we have to kind of think back on what those conditions were at the time that, you know, everybody was kind of worried that there was going to be some sort of coup attempt. Trump had been talking about how the election was stolen from him. You know, his media echo chamber was talking about how the election was stolen from him. And so, um, I, you know, I don't really think there was any sort of, um, you know, there wasn't any great mystery about like why the Capitol is overrun. I just think that, you know, police were a little underprepared for that. Um, they were outnumbered. And, you know, in the end, instead of opening fire, you know, or shooting people, which obviously would have been just horrific, um, you know, they did what they could to deescalate. And, you know, it could have been much, much, much worse. I mean, I think, you know, we ended up with what, like three or four deaths, um, maybe five, I think the final number was, including some of the insurrectionists and, you know, the, the police officer who died. And then, of course, there were a number of officer suicides in the days after that, which don't usually get counted. But, you know, when you when you kind of and we've had opportunity this week to do that again with the Tucker Carlson stuff, when you revisit some of that footage, uh, man, you know, if even one of those cops who is being beaten opens fire, you know, who knows how could who, how bad that could have been. And so in some ways, I mean, as terrible of a day as, as that was and in one of the worst days in the history of our country, 
Um, it could have been much, much worse. And so we, we did kind of get lucky in that respect. And it is kind of a miracle that given how outnumbered police were, um, that they didn't resort to violence because, I mean, we can obviously think of a lot of other instances in recent American history where police officers are too quick to pull the trigger, you know, quite literally in some cases. Um, but yeah, you know, in terms of when you ask what happened, I mean, I just think there were, there were more, way more insurrectionists than there were police officers. Police officers were reluctant for obvious reasons to, to start shooting. And so they were able to get into the Capitol and do what they did. You mentioned Biden a couple of minutes ago. Uh, what is your take on how he's handling this administration day to day? What do you like? What don't you like? What could be improved upon? Is inflation his fault? Uh, help me out here. I think overall, he's done a very good job. Um, I mean, when we consider what he inherited in January 2021, I think 80,000 or so Americans died that month of COVID. And, um, you know, I do think actually COVID is one area where I think you can, there are some areas to criticize Biden. Um, You know, I think if anything, you know, we're we're in a state now where it's usually between like two and 500 people a day dying from COVID, which is still like a very significant amount of Americans every day dying. And the fact that we hardly hear him talking about it anymore, you know, when he came into office, it was pretty much all that he talked about. Um, you know, I think you could argue that he should do a little bit more there to continue to encourage people to get boosters and to mask when appropriate and things like that. I understand why he doesn't do that because I think people have COVID fatigue at this point. And it's, you know, there's a little bit of a political calculation there too that, you know, he'd be seen as kind of nagging people and being alarmist or something like that. But we still have a lot of people dying. Um, but no, so he, I mean, he did a really great job with the pandemic. I think the relief bill that we got, you know, a few months into his administration really helped turn the economy around. And, you know, the jobs market right now is as strong as it's been in about 50 years. Um, inflation, you know, probably, you know, there's, there's probably some link between, you know, increasing government spending and inflation. So I don't want to totally absolve him for that. But when you look around the world, a lot of countries struggle with inflation due to supply chain issues that were caused by COVID, you know, pulling out of the economic malaise that COVID inflicted for 2020 and 2021. So it wasn't just an American problem. Um, but I think, you know, both with COVID, with the economy, he's done a really good job. Um, so yeah, I mean, when, when you kind of look at the big picture where we're at now relative to where we were at, you know, basically 26 months ago, I don't really think that you can, you know, you can't say anything other than Biden is going to leave the country in much better shape after his first term than it was when he took office. And that's kind of the main measure of any president, I think. Um, You know, you can quibble with 2021. Um, Biden obviously spent a lot of time trying to woo the Joe Manchins and Kristen Cinemas into getting on board with some sort of big reconciliation bill, which ended up being a fruitless endeavor. And so um, that was around the time when we think back, you know, late 21 into 22, when inflation really started spiking and Congress was seen as not really doing anything that Biden's approval rating really tanked. And his approval was like remarkably low there for a while, you know, in the 30s, which is like just terrible. But then, you know, as the economy improved, his numbers started rising again. And then there was a flurry of legislative activity last year on the infrastructure bill, um, on the climate bill. The midterms ended up being way better for Democrats than they had any right to be, you know, relative to previous midterm cycles. Um, The fact that they were able to hold on to the Senate was a huge win. And now his approval is back in the mid 40s. And he's in a good position, I think, to win a second term. So, you know, I think when you especially when you look at where unemployment was when he took office, it was like at 6.5% or something like that. Now he's basically halved that, you know, it's in the threes. Um, And if you would have told someone in January 2021, that, you know, basically two years and some change later, we'd have unemployment back in the threes, with inflation in check in the economy, you know, showing signs of strength, I think anybody would have signed up for that. So, you know, it's easy to nitpick. um, But I think big picture, he's done a really good job. I like that answer. Uh, And very thoughtful and thorough. Pivoting again, 
Have you ever gotten contacted by politicians or celebrities, but specifically politicians and or maybe celebrities to push their agendas? Like, can you say who? Is it weird? Is it not something you can say? But talk to me about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm in touch with politicians every day. I mean, just that's part, kind of basic reporting, you know, is, um, you know, there's a give and take where you reach out to someone to see if they want to comment on something or if a member of Congress wants to share something with you in terms of like a bill that they're pushing or like a video clip from a hearing that they want you to see. Um, and those relationships, by and large, are always really cordial. You don't get to be an elected official, especially if you're a member of Congress without having some level of people skills and kind of an understanding of the give and take of, you know, what, what reporters can do for you and what you can do for them, just in terms of being available and commenting, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, when you're a political reporter, I mean, even today, I had a couple members of Congress in my DMs um, today flagging video clips. There were so many hearings going on today. There were like, you know, four or five pretty major House hearings and a couple on the Senate side as well. And so so um, I can't think of any time that it's been weird, um, but, you know, as you would expect, it's largely Democrats. Um, back in my former life as a local reporter here in the Twin Cities, um, I had a couple of Republican legislators here who were good sources of mine who were, you know, more kind of like libertarian, not socially conservative people who I, you know, we, we had a lot of overlap in our political views. And so it made sense for them to use me as a source or to, you know, for me to use them as a source, I should say. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just part of, you know, reporting on Congress. Um, I talked to people in the Biden administration a lot. Um, but even in the Trump days, I had a couple Trump, you know, kind of lower level people who they wouldn't go on the record, but they would send me tips or, you know, if there was like an interesting anecdote on background they could share with me, they would do that. So, um, that was actually kind of more interesting than I think the fact that I was in touch with the Biden administration was that I did have a couple lower level people with the Trump administration who wouldn't go on the record or, you know, and whose names I can't really share. But, um, at least had enough uh, respect for what I do and interest to kind of get the word out to my audience about some things that were taking place at the White House where they would share little tidbits with me here and there. So, um, you know, it's different these days because the way that I do my job, I'm not actually in D.C. most of the time. So, you know, I watch a lot of these press briefings or scrums and at the Capitol, um, you know, you see I have a lot of respect for reporters who do that, who are there all day you know, kind of staking out these politicians and asking them them questions. Uh, my job is a lot easier than that. You know, it's still challenging in its own way, but um, I'm able to report on things from a distance, um, but yet still have sources because just the way that our technology is set up these days, we can have relationships with people who we never actually meet. Um, you know, it's always great when you have an opportunity to meet them and to kind of build a rapport on a personal level. But, um, you know, that is kind of a blessing for me because the type of work that I do wouldn't be possible in my current setup 20 years ago. You know, it's only because we have such great technology that I can do this. What is your take? What is your correspondence on uh, my love, Mia Moore, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene? Um, have you had any, has she spoken about you um, specifically? And like, what the fuck is her deal, man? What the fuck is her situation, bro? Well, I mean, she's in like a deep, deep red seat. So, I mean, that's kind of the first thing that you have to remember with her and with like the um, like Clay Higgins from Louisiana is another example. I mean, some of the most extreme Republicans, their seats are so safe that they never really have to worry about losing an election. And so that kind of emboldens them. You know, Boebert is kind of the exception because she barely won. She won by like a few hundred votes last time around. And so she's kind of the rare extremist where, you know, even this upcoming cycle, she's going to have a real challenger and it's going to be tough for her to hold onto that seat. But, um, you know, I think, I think Marjorie Taylor green, 
uh, man, you know, what is her deal? I guess I don't really, it's, it's hard to explain because, you know, when I first started writing about her and when people first started being aware of her was back, you know, right after the 2018 cycle when she won her seat. And if you remember one of the first video, I guess, no, it was, it was a 2020 cycle. I take that back. It was 2020 when she won her seat. But if you remember, like one of the first big national stories about her was there was a video of her. Um, she was in DC in 2018 and she was harassing the Parkland, school shooting survivors who were up in D.C. for some sort of gun control event, and she was on a street in D.C. kind of like heckling them. And then there was a video of her going to AOC's office and kind of making a scene there and like, you know, just kind of these like reprehensible actions. And um, now, of course, you know, I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago, she was heckled at a restaurant. Some guy got up and was swearing at her and she made a big deal out of this, the death of civility and how it's, you know, terrible that she doesn't feel safe going out to eat. And it's like, this was you, you know, Four, four or five years ago, this is what your, your brand was harassing people out in public. Um, so that takes a certain level of shamelessness, you know, to decry the thing that just a few years ago you were doing in a very public way. That was kind of your whole brand. But then, you know, she went from obviously being a QAnon person to, you know, now she's kind of trying to, it seems like a little bit tone things down these days. I mean, actually, just before you and I got in this call, I was watching, there was a house hearing on COVID fraud, uh, COVID relief money fraud that was taking place. And I, you know, I was thankful that our call started when it did because I was able to watch your questioning just before I got in the call with you. And it was remarkable how kind of um, normal she was, I want to say. I mean, it, you know, it's, but this is relative to her standards, but there was no yelling. There was no accosting the witnesses. There was no kind of loaded questions. Um, she was actually kind of behaving like a normal member of Congress. I don't expect that to last. Um, you know, these witnesses weren't ones that she was trying to beat up on, like uh, Yoel Roth from Twitter when he testified a few weeks ago and she kind of made a big scene about, um, you know, denouncing him and, and you know, really trying to kind of discredit him. So, um, but yeah, I mean, she's a very complex figure because again, I mean, she was kind of this conspiracy nut five years ago, which she still is, but you know, she's become one of the most influential House Republicans. Kevin McCarthy loves her. And, you know, and I think a big thing just to mention in this connection is that she has a lot of power because she is, you know, among the Trump base, one of the most popular Republicans these days. I mean, she's easily more popular with the Trump base than Kevin McCarthy is. And Kevin McCarthy realizes that. And so he's kind of drafting on her to maintain cred with the with the mega base. And if she ever had something negative to say about him, it would cause him a lot more trouble than it would cause her. So it's kind of a weird thing. You know, just one other comment on this on this uh, note is that the fact that the midterms this past November were so close actually in a weird way kind of emboldened the fringe because if Republicans had a 20 seat majority instead of a four seat majority, they wouldn't need the votes of the Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Clay Higgins. And that more moderate element, you know, could interesting. Yeah. But, but because it's such a narrow majority and they need every single vote that gave people like her a whole lot more influence and power than they would have, you know, again, if it was like a 20 seat situation. Interesting. Um, you're a reporter, you know, news better than I do. So I'm asking you this. There was a a photograph of Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, foot the other day, and it appeared that she had three toes that she, she has a hoof. Um, would you be able to confirm or deny if, uh, in fact, Marjorie Taylor Greene does or does not have a hoof? I'm, I'm asking you uh, totally sincerely because right now, me, Michael Rampart, me, I'm not speaking on behalf of you, me, I believe, based on that photo, that she may have hoofs and not actual feet. Like she has like cow feet. I, I, have, see, I have also seen that photo Um it's kind of a weird photo because it's not like super high resolution or anything. Um, I have not done an investigation on this. Um, I'm guessing that if you really kind of 
went down the rabbit hole of like looking at her Facebook page or something. I'm guessing that they're, I'm guessing she has five toes in their other photos because she's also, I mean, she's posted a lot of videos of her exercising. That's like a big part of her thing is uh, you probably seen those where the CrossFit where she's doing the, the very odd looking pull-ups that she does. Um, but is she barefoot in the, in the CrossFit? No, no, she's not. But but the point simply being that she seems to have some athleticism where she's getting around pretty good. And if you only, if you only have three toes, I would think your balance would be a little bit off. Granted, not if you're an actual, not if you, if you're genetically mixing, she might be part farm animal. I'm just saying that that could be the truth. And I'll just leave it there. Uh, My final question for you is, where are you at on Twitter? You got kicked off Twitter, and you're not a rambunctious person like myself. I, Aaron, have never been kicked off Twitter. I was suspended once for 30 days, um, but I've never been kicked off. How did you get kicked off? How did you get back on? And where are you at with Twitter right now? The the story of me getting kicked off is actually kind of a... um... It, it's not that exciting of a story because basically what happened was, if you remember, back in December, Elon threw a fit over that account that was tracking his private jet around. And they were doing this using completely public information like anyone would use to track a flight, you know, if you're meeting your loved one, to figure out what time it's going to land, where, where it is, that those sorts of things. But, um, you know, so he ended up banishing the account that was uh, tracking his jet around. And I posted a tweet noting that a Facebook page that did the same thing was still live. And so then he proclaimed after I posted that tweet that sharing any sort of his location information was grounds for being suspended. And so um, I don't really think that was the real reason because the group of people that got suspended, including myself, were all critics of his. Um, So I think that I suspect, you know, for kind of obvious reasons that had more to do with it than the actual uh, tracking his jet around thing. But yeah, so I got suspended along with I think it was like a dozen or so um, mostly lefty reporters um, I was told initially it was a permanent suspension, which obviously was kind of a bummer for me because I basically run a business on Twitter. Um, so, you know, being cut off from my audience there would obviously really, um, hurt me in a lot of ways, but there was such backlash that, you know, within just a few hours, you know, he was kind of walking it back. He posted a poll asking when we should all be reinstated and the banishment ended up only being for like a little over a day. So it wasn't any sort of huge deal. And ultimately I think, it really helped my career because um, I, I gained like 50,000 Twitter followers. Like I got a whole bunch of new newsletter subscribers through that. So it ended up actually being a net positive, despite the fact that I think it, you know, obviously is a bummer in terms of what's, what's going on with Twitter and the direction that it's headed these days. So um, in terms of where I'm at with Twitter, you know, I'm trying to kind of diversify. I'm on uh, Mastodon and post news and, um, you know, various other social media platforms just trying to build up followings elsewhere because, I mean, you know, you've you've seen it as well where, you know, you, you pull it up one day and you can't tweet or, you know, images aren't loading. Um, he's fired everyone, so there's no staff there to fix things when they break or it takes longer at least. And so it's really not headed anywhere good at this point. I mean, it feels like we're kind of in the decline stage of Twitter at this point. But I still find it, you know, despite all of my gripes and kind of like um, complaining about it, it's still the best platform in a lot of ways. I mean, I think, you know, all of the brands, all of the public figures, sports teams, you know, if you're looking for NBA clips, um, Twitter is still the place to go for all of that stuff. And so, um, you know, I still find myself using it way more than the other platforms, but I am trying to make arrangements so that if it really is the end for Twitter, if I do get permanently suspended for real, just because like today, even, you know, this hearing that I was talking about earlier, that was all about the Twitter files, 
a lot of the Democrats were being highly, highly critical of Elon Musk and um, drawing into question where he got the money to buy Twitter and his connections with Saudi Arabia and Russia and all of, the, all, you know, all of these things that he doesn't really want people talking about. And so even in the course of posting clips of that, you know, I'm kind of thinking to myself, like, you know, is he going to declare tomorrow that he has a new policy against anybody talking about his personal finances or something like that and then suspend me? I mean, that would make just as much sense as what happened to me in December. So, um, you know, I do kind of have that realization or that understanding that I'm kind of on borrowed time that I could be banned at any point. But that is just kind of what it is. And, you know, if anything, last time around getting suspended, because like I said, I had an influx of newsletter subscribers and, you know, a lot of people reaching out and saying that they supported me and, you know, we're going to follow me wherever my work went after that, whatever platform I was on. Um, there will be life after Twitter. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. All right, Aaron, listen, I, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time uh, to join me on the I Am Rapport Stereo podcast. I appreciate your page. I appreciate your work. I appreciate all your effort in uh, sharing uh, information with uh, dum-dums like me and, uh, you know, people that are, are far more educated and smarter. And, uh, uh, you know, I appreciate you uh, being on the I Am Rapport Stereo podcast. I wish you nothing but the best, everything going forward. And uh, I really uh, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. That's it. Boom. I'm out. Great interview. I want to thank Aaron Rupar. You should all follow him on his Instagram page at Aaron Rupar. A-A-R-O-N-R-U-P-A-R. Came Saw Disrupted. Came Saw Disrupted. Iron Rapport Stereo Podcast uh, is done. Miles Jordan, a.k.a. The Bleach Brothers, a.k.a. The Diggity Dust Brothers. Take me at it with something real nice, yes. Take me at it with something real loud, yes. But most importantly... And this puppy with something real funky. I am Rappaport Stereo Podcast. I'm out. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's a new way to bet on things outside of sports with Kalshi. Maybe you thought uh, on the future of TikTok. Will Congress ban it? Or won't they? Will Taylor Swift's album win album of the year? Will Biden's approval rating go up? Will it go down? Or inflation? You can trade futures on all of that and make money if you're correct. You're smart. You know things. Bet on it. $20 bonus if you go to Kalshi.com slash stereo. Spelled K-A-L-L. S-H-I and deposit $50. Kalshi.com slash stereo. Get in the game. There is no guarantee of performance. An investor could lose their entire investment. Investment fees. iHeartMedia does not recommend any investments. See further disclosures at Kalshi.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.